0: Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. Well, good morning again, and peace be with you. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I just got back from Georgia, spending time with my family, where uh, sadly, unfortunately, they're still there, but I'm glad to be here with you. Um, uh, uh, Last week, Ken and Craig introduced us to the idea of Christ's return, what we call his second coming, which uh, Ryan alluded to as the season of Advent, where we anticipate and prepare for his second coming by reflecting uh, before Christmas on his first coming, uh, and he talked about what it means for how we steward our finances here, in the, here today as we anticipate that day. And today, keeping with that same thing, we're again, again going to be focused on his second coming uh, when he comes in glory. But this time with a focus on how we marshal our loves toward others, especially who Jesus refers to as the least of these. So I'd, be, I'd like to begin by just asking a question. Uh, When you hear the word judgment, like we heard read about in both Ezekiel and in uh, Matthew, what images or feelings come to mind? Are they positive or negative? Negative. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, if I was a betting man, I'd venture to say they're probably pretty negative. I think that that is how... Most people think about God's judgment. Um, they think that if God is going to judge them, that's a big if, if he's going to judge them, uh, it's probably going to be out of a sense of pettiness or even vindictiveness, that if anything, it will be uh, unjust rather than a way of God actually ensuring that there will be justice in the end. But according to the Bible, that couldn't be any further from the truth. In fact, the scriptures testify to God's judgment being so intertwined with the good news of the gospel that they cannot be separated. And so, what I want to do this morning is unpack this passage from Matthew 25 in hopes that we will be encouraged by three things concerning God's judgment. Number one, that Christ is king, and that when he returns in glory to judge the nations, he's going to judge the nations. Not because he hates them and wants them to cower in fear, but because he loves them and wants to see them healed and made whole. Number two, that when he judges the nations, it's going to be according to his love and not our failures. And number three, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, we can have confidence that when he comes, we will have every reason to shout his praise as we inherit the kingdom prepared for us. So let's dive in. Number one, Christ is king, and he's coming to judge the nations. Look again with me at verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, two quick things to notice right off the top. Jesus says that he will be the one coming in glory and that he will be doing the judging between the sheep and the goats. Now we know because we just read it that he's got Ezekiel 34 in mind. And you remember from Ezekiel 34 that God says in response to his people being overrun and, over and oppressed by wicked rulers that he himself was going to come back and be their shepherd and their king. That he would seek and save his people, feed the hungry, heal the injured, strengthen the weak, and yes, punish the wicked. And so when Jesus says that he will actually be him who is sitting on the throne judging between sheep and goats, he's actually saying that Ezekiel 34 is speaking about him. That he is the long-awaited shepherd king and that when he comes, it will be him who does the judging. Now let's pause just for a moment and let that sink in. Here is a man, says Fleming Rutledge, here is a man who was born into a poor family, who went to no university, who owns nothing, who has no bank account, no resume, no portfolio, no job, no house, no title, no rank, a man who is about to be judged guilty and not fit to live by the highest religious and political tribunals of his time, saying that he is going to come again personally at the end of the world to determine the fate of every human being who has ever been born. It's an astonishing claim. He acts like he's God or something. But more than it is astonishing, it's good. It's good. It's good because it means that your life matters to God. Think about it. What could say your life matters more than the fact that the creator of the universe thinks your life is worth judging? I don't think anything else does. Where you're from or where you currently live? No. Where you went to school or where you work? Your race, your gender, your age, your accomplishments, your intelligence, or how much you're financially worth? None of these things say that your life matters quite like the fact that one day God is going to hold in balance everything you've ever done, every word you've ever spoken, and every thought you've ever had. In other words, God is going to do you and me the honor of taking our lives more seriously than we or anyone else ever has. Let me say that again. God is going to do you and me the honor of taking our lives more seriously than we or anyone else ever has. And that is good news. It's good news because it means that he sees a future for you and me and him. Consider this. Some of you know that once upon a time, I played a little baseball in college. Not really enough to say that I'm a a has-been, far closer to say I never was. Uh, But I was there long enough to get a shirt, so, you know, I can say I was there. Until one day when the head coach called me into his office before practice, and I knew exactly what was about to happen. I was about to be told that he did not see a future for us together. And here's how I knew. Four months earlier, he quit coaching me. He quit encouraging me. He quit correcting me. He quit yelling at me. In a word, he quit judging me. And he quit judging me because he no longer saw a future for us together. You see, in baseball, judgment means you matter to the team. And in the kingdom of God, it means the same thing. A parent who doesn't discipline their kids is a parent who doesn't care who or what their kids become. A coach who doesn't critique the performance of his athletes is a coach who doesn't believe they can do any better. And a God who doesn't judge the nations is a God who doesn't plan to heal them, doesn't plan to feed them with justice, and doesn't plan to move in and take up residence with them. But according to Jesus Christ... That is not who God is. He intends to do all those things and more. And when he brings his kingdom to bear on earth as in heaven, he intends for you and me to be there. His judgment is good news because it means that no matter what this world says about you or how you feel about yourself, he sees a future with you and is glorious. That's point number one. Point number two, when Christ comes as king to judge the nations, it's going to be according to his love and not our failures. Look again with me at Matthew 25, verses 34 through 36. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. When I read this passage, it's hard for me not to think of someone like Mother Teresa. In fact, this very chapter was one of the key scriptures that inspired the work that she did in Calcutta, among the least of these, when she opened a hospice called the Home for the Dying. The name, of course, was self explanatory. To be a resident at the Home for the Dying, you had to be dying. You had to be uh, in a condition beyond any medical help, and you had to be all alone. You had to have no family by which to speak of. And if you met this criterion, if you were dying and alone, she would come and pick you up in her little ambulance, and she would take you to her home, the home for the dying. And she and the Sisters of Charity would come, and they would welcome you, feed you, clothe you, and love you to the end. And when she bathed you, she would remind herself that Christ was hidden in you. And she would imagine that she was washing the crucified body of her Lord, preparing him for for his burial. Sounds a lot like Matthew 25, doesn't it? I read one time that someone said to her, I wouldn't do what you're doing for a million dollars. To which she just replied, neither would I. But she would do it for Jesus, and she did, because she believed that everyone has the right to die in the presence of a loving face, the face of Jesus reflecting from hers. Now, Mother Teresa was not a perfect woman. She did not live a perfect or sinless life. She made mistakes, and sometimes she even accepted money from corrupt people, ignorantly. She doubted God, and sometimes she felt abandoned by him. Believe it or not, Mother Teresa had plenty of failures. But every little thing she did, she did with great love for Jesus. And when she stands before Christ on that day, she will not be judged by how many good works she did or did not do but by the love that she did them with. And what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 25 is that the same will be true for you and me. We will be judged according to our love, his love in us, his love through us, not our failures. But this raises an important question, one that I've been wrestling with all week. What is so special about these people, about the least of these Why is it not enough just to love my neighbors or my boss or my in-laws? Why does Christ make loving the lost, the poor, the sick, and the guilty the standard? On one hand, I think it's because as the least of these, they typically represent a group of people who can't love us back. And therefore, they purify the sincerity of our love making every little act of love great in the eyes of God. They, they bless us. But on the other hand, and just as significantly, if not more, I think it's because apart from his grace, that's exactly who we would be. Lost, poor, sick, and guilty. And in just as much need of of Christ's love as the least of these. And therefore, it's only fitting that we who have been made rich by his grace should be agents of his grace as well. And so when Christ comes to judge the nations, it will not be by our failures, but by the measure of love that he has loved us. It will be by a measure of sacrificial love, love shaped like a cross. Number three, Christ gives us everything we need to face his judgment with confidence that when he comes, we will inherit the kingdom. Look one last time with me at verses 37 through 40. Jesus says, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Did you catch that? Though they loved the least of these, they did not realize they were loving Jesus. In other words, they were not loving the least of these so that they would be blessed. They were loving the least of these because they already were. Let's go back to Ezekiel for a moment. We didn't read it, but just two chapters after God promises to rescue his people and to be their shepherd king, he promised them three more things as well. He promised to cleanse them from all their uncleanness. He promised to take from them their hearts of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And he promised to put his own spirit within them so that they could delight in his will and walk in his ways and bring glory to his name. Three promises he made to to his people when he came back. In other words, he promised to give them everything they needed by grace to become the kind of people who would love the least of these, not out of a fear of judgment and not even out of a hope for reward, but out of an internal compulsion to simply love others as they had been loved by him. In a word, he promised to give them the gift of gratitude which almost always leads to gratuitous generosity. And as we now know, that promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Through his death, he has cleansed us from all unrighteousness and forgiven all of our sins. Through his resurrection, he has given us new hearts, free from the power of sin. And through the indwelling of his spirit, he has given us the power to love our neighbors, our enemies, and even the least of these, with the same cross-shaped love with which he has loved us. In other words, he has given us everything we need, not only to face his judgment with confidence, but to eagerly anticipate it, knowing that when he comes, we too will inherit the kingdom. Let me close with this poem that I think summarizes wonderfully the gift of God. To run and work the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your love, for your love that has so transformed our lives that we have become new people, people who not only have no excuse to avoid the least of these, God, but people who, des- who, who have no desire to avoid them, God. We have become people who have been filled with gratuitous generosity because that is what you have been to us, and we thank you, God. We pray that you would show us in the days that follow, God, where the least of these are in our lives, so that we may go and love you there, Lord, and so witness to a watching world that you truly are the world's true Lord and King, and that you are going to come in glory and establish your kingdom upon the earth. Lord, help us, Lord, to walk in obedience to this call that we may bear fruit to your glory, our joy, and the life of the world. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at ApostlesHouston.org.